why don't we bring people together and create a strategic plan that sort of sets a roadmap for that continuing journey to excellence. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the Past Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. We are super excited as always because we have a wonderful guest today uh, to talk with us about sort of the bigger picture of the way the, the education machine works in many, many places. And so joining us today is Paulo Di Maria, who is Ohio's Superintendent of Public Instruction. So welcome to the program, Paulo. Annalise, it's great to be with you. Excellent. And to set some context for all of our listeners who uh, come to us from all over, a little bit about Paulo. Colleagues know Paulo DeMarie as a passionate leader and a tireless worker and a respectful listener and a man with a great sense of humor. And I can attest to that as well. All of which are qualities that he uses on a regular basis as he supports Ohio's 3,600 public schools and 1.7 million students in the state of Ohio. And I can attest that he is an enthusiastic cheerleader and energetic advocate for Ohio's public schools. And so... Paulo, you know, with, with all of that in mind, you know, and just to sort some additional context for our listeners, um, you know, I've known Paulo for a number of years now with Past Foundation being based in Ohio as well. We bump up with Paulo and the work with all the public school stuff on a frequent and regular basis. And so for our listeners who might not know, let's start with what does a superintendent of public instruction do from that sort of big umbrella sort of approach? Yeah, I mean, and and you know, by and large, what I do is I lead the state entity that's really responsible for uh, ensuring uh, state policy is carried out. And a lot of people think, well, oh, the State Department must be, you know, you know, just slightly below the federal agency with all this power and all this authority. And I actually look at it just the other way around, right? right. The real power and authority lies in the school building and at the mm -hmm. school district level. And our job is really to try to create the conditions to make sure that those entities are in a position to be, be successful. And sure, the state might prescribe certain standards for what we want students to know and be able to do. We might prescribe certain standards for how we measure the success mm -hmm. of the system and use that, create a feedback loop to say, okay, what do we see how does that inform what state policy should be like? How does it inform supports for schools and districts? Uh, but ultimately, the great work happens there. And we're, I won't say we're on the periphery, but we are, you know, in sort of service to the rest of the mm -hmm. system, creating the conditions for success to take place in the interest of every student receiving an outstanding education. And you've been very, very heavily involved in education and public education, and quite frankly, in public policy for much of your career in a variety of different roles over right. that career as well. But you have been sort of sitting in this seat now for, for, a, for a number of years. Um, yeah, for, five years. Just, for uh, a multiple, yeah. at this point, of governors, right? And so it, it, it is a role that often transcends 
politics in many ways, in many places, not always, not every state operates that way, but certainly Ohio has uh, the tradition of recognizing that this position is one that is um, a position of, of, of stability that's, that's highly necessary. So share with us just a little bit about, so in addition to the aspirational and the, the day-to-day work that you're doing, you're also heading up initiatives. Um, you're helping local communities, these all these superintendents and schools and school districts around the state, think about what the future might look like. So give us a sense, for example, I know over your tenure as state superintendent, there are several um, bodies of work that you're super proud of that have had lasting impact on the state. Let's talk about a couple of those um, pieces. Well, let's start by talking about the state strategic plan. So when I came into the agency, I found an organization full of amazing people, uh, lots of great ideas, a a really pretty strong policy context. But I found us to be a lot more reactive rather than Mm -hmm. proactive. And I also found us to be very much more perhaps compliance oriented than service oriented. So one of the things I contemplated early on working with the the State Board of Education uh, and others was to say, why don't we bring people together and create a strategic plan that sort of sets a roadmap for that continuing journey to excellence? And so we brought people together. We spent over a year. Uh, we, we had focus groups. We went out into the community. We had uh, regional meetings at 13 places across uh, the state, brought in a number of experts and, and convened little subcommittees. Mm-hmm. And we emerged with a document called Each Child, Our Future. Uh, and it lays out a whole, you know, there's an infographic that shows the yeah. whole child right at the center. Uh, and then all the contributing factors. We've got a vision statement, a goal statement, and 10 sets of strategies. And one of the things that that plan really did was it, it helped to do exactly what I hoped. And that was shift us into more of a proactive. What are the things we, we should be doing to drive the system toward excellence? And how do we as an agency pivot to being more service and support oriented rather than necessarily compliance oriented. That doesn't mean we did away with the compliance parts. There's right. just some things we have to pay attention to both under federal law, under state law, but we can do it in a way that's actually, how do we help you as a school district to become excellent and to move on that road? And it really embraces this idea of no, there's no one size fits all. Every, every district is unique. Every building is unique. Every child is unique, hence the name Each Child, Our Future. And that if we collectively focus on meeting the needs of each child, that begins to help us improve as a a system and then also improve for each individual with the goal being each individual reaching success. So that strategic plan then sort of formed the foundation because those 10 strategies then gave us the entree to say, okay, what are, what kind of initiatives will we develop in each of those areas? Um, you know, one of the strip strategies was around literacy. Mm-hmm. Great. At the time, the federal government was putting some grants out uh, among the states. Uh, and so we applied for one of those grants, received a huge infusion of federal resources, and we put together a statewide literacy plan and then started making grants to um, districts and schools mm-hmm. that wanted to, you know, pivot their own approaches to literacy. And we did a lot of great work and we applied for a second federal grant and done even more work. And we're seeing, you know, a lot of energy and momentum around how we improve the way we teach literacy, something so essential 
mm-hmm. to the education process and doing that across uh, the state. You know, and, and the other, you know, the other nine strategies also everything from, you know, transforming high schools into right. much more powerful tools, uh, you know, places for mm-hmm. transitioning to and, and helping a student define his or her success and what they wanted to do in the future to uh, advancing the cause of uh, early childhood education to, you know, quality teachers, quality principals, excellent, you know, curricular materials mm-hmm. and instructional practices uh, and on and on and on. Yeah. And I remember this process because I participated now, like so many of my colleagues did, um, you know, and it was a it was a it was a wonderful endeavor in part because um, and one of the things I did appreciate about the way that you approached this was it was there was a very deep reaching in to stakeholders. And I and I use the, that sort of phrasing very, very deliberately um, in terms of not just getting and gaining input, but at the actual ground level of how then would the deployment of these strategies actually in, in practicality work. And ironically enough, for better or worse, right, um, you got to test a lot of this when, you know, the big bad bug came and showed up in the world and we're still sort of in the grips of it. But I'm really curious, Paolo, how did all that fabulous foundational work that you did, how did that come to play in a moment of crisis that challenged so, so many? Because, you know, my standing back and sort of watching the work that you and the department did in the midst of trying to navigate the pandemic and what it was going to mean for everybody, you know, from the outside looking in, it, it, it really appears that you, you reached in and leaned back on that work fairly heavily and that it did, in fact, play a role in the decision-making as you move forward. So in my mind, that says, hey, that foundational strategy, it worked, it was here, we leaned on it. And I suspect we also learned a lot about sort of where its gaps were. And we'll talk about that part in a minute, but but share with us just a little bit sort of uh, the reflective component about that work. And then this thing comes about because, you know, you're not unique, not just in the US, but, you know, around the world, you know, right. as leaders having to suddenly think about things differently. Yeah, yeah. One of the so going back to the structure of the plan, one of the core principles, and it's in a in a bright blue box in the in the center of the of the of the infographic is this notion of partnerships. Mm-hmm. When we went in to do the strategic plan, we knew that if we all work together, we will have a more powerful impact because people will feel invested in the plan. And so many times the strategic plan sort of sits on the shelf, but ours, you know, and, and I was concerned that maybe that would happen to this one too. But so many people were invested in both its creation and in its success that it really brought lots of people together. Now, what was interesting about the pandemic is it almost, you know, sort of um, drove us back into reactive mode because suddenly rather than being proactive, we had to sort of say, okay, there's this thing now that's Mm -hmm. disrupting everything. What do we need to do in terms of public policy frameworks? What do we need to do in terms of permissions and, uh, you know, compliance allowances and so forth and so on to to accommodate that? But But in addition to that work, our message loud and clear to everyone. And what people sort of migrated to naturally was, let's reach out to our partners. Mm-hmm. So you saw so many schools and districts and partners defined in, 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 in a very broad sense. I saw so many more teachers communicating with other teachers about yeah. how to 
you know, how to use technology, how to leverage, you know, this isn't working for me, or I see that you're doing that and it's really working. How can you help me? Um, district to district, superintendents mm-hmm. talking to each other about the conditions they face, but then also, and, and, and in some ways more robustly, um, engaging with local partners, whether that was the foundation community, the social services community, mm-hmm. the advocacy community, uh, other child caring organizations, the healthcare community, the mental health community, and so many strong partnerships that either existed and were amplified or were newly created. In in no prior period was the relationship between local health departments and schools stronger than it has been over the last, you know, 18 months, because that was a necessary thing that Mm -hmm. had to take place for those entities to kind of oversee their respective, um, their respective missions in their communities. So you're exactly right Mm -hmm. that we, that that the way we got through, and and the other thing about partnerships is it, is it really gives us some comfort and some support from a, from an emotional and a, and a, and a, you know, mental perspective. We we need to 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 have you know that support that comes from mutual work towards a common goal and helping our kids to be successful and safe uh, and 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 um, you know well fed and have their healthcare needs tended to. That's what brought us together and really allowed so many many communities in Ohio uh, deal with the pandemic in a very successful way. Yeah, and and they did. And, it, and the other thing that I certainly appreciated about it, and granted, hindsight, and we're still in the midst of it, but but we've come through an awful lot, right? Um, you know, part of that hindsight component of all of that is is recognizing the value in seeing that our communities are so individual, and we all know that we live that every day, right? We talk about it, yep. but we had this opportunity, sort of in a different way, to see it in real time. To it was living out right before us all, right? Because you know, community on the east side of the state is going to react and deal with a situation very different than a community in the northern portion of the state and so on and so forth. And we did see that play out in real time. And so one of the things I'm really curious about, um, you know, sort of from your role and within the department is how, how, how does dealing with something that is so different for everybody, how do you wrangle that? Because that was not an easy lift, Paolo. I mean, no question whatsoever, because... Honestly, it was so different across the entire state. What what was the premise that you used to sort of operate in that space to ensure that all the things that needed to get done as best we could do them with what we knew at the time, right, was able to be implemented and deployed effectively? How do you do that? So I think there are really two factors at play. One was all the long time that we developed a strategic plan. And even prior to that, you know, one, one of my key attitudes has been there's no one size fits all. You know, mm-hmm. Ohio's a beautiful patchwork quilt of just like you said, mm-hmm. you've got urban, you've got suburban, you've got uh, rural agricultural, you've got uh, Appalachian, you've got all, all a host of variety of different settings. And, and that's okay. And every one of them has to sort of approach the educational undertaking uh, in a, in a way that fits their own context, their own student body, their own community values, and so forth and so on. So if you start with that assumption and and use that to guide you as you do the work, then that's a good starting point. The second key aspect is is one of trust. Mm -hmm. You have to trust that both leaders and teachers uh, and and, and staffs working in a cohesive manner and working with their boards and their communities, they're going to make good choices that meet the needs of their community. Now, I will be the first to admit that sometimes in local communities, there wasn't always agreement about what those right choices were. Oh, sure. But, But I think it was okay to allow those communities and and frankly, every community to go through those debates and those struggles to arrive at a place where they felt like this is what's going to work for our students. And, Mm -hmm. And also recognizing 
that there are choices to be made. And so if a, if a student was at home uh, with a with a, an older adult that was immunocompromised or something, you know, we understood and 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 all districts understood that other alternative options had to be pursued. Right. So you saw a lot of remote learning. You saw a lot of sharing of ideas of how to do that. All the while that many, many schools, especially in some of our less populated areas and in rural communities, were, you know, back in school pretty much from the very start right. of the 2019-2020, right. uh, 2020, 2021 mm-hmm. school year, uh, you know, with, without much disruption. And, right. and, and so every district handled things a little bit differently. And, and our goal really wasn't to try to tell anybody what to do as much as it was to help people understand what what their options were what their what approaches uh, you know might be valid and then you know let them decide for themselves while we created the policy context that allowed for that variability and maybe even a little more variability than mm-hmm. we're actually used to uh, in the regular course so it's that notion of trust and that notion of not trying to sort of say I'm just gonna we're just gonna impose something. Right. Um, that's going to fit everybody that I think allowed us to have, a, you know, by and large, a relatively smooth, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 2021 school year. Yeah, as best as one could in the midst of a pandemic. Right, right. Absolutely. And not every state took that approach. You know, you, you, you didn't say it out loud, but 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 uh, I can. We work in multiple states and some states it really was a very top down. You will all do sort of approach and yeah. other states. It was extremely hands off with zero guidance and people were wandering in the woods. You know, in, in Ohio, you sort of and your team took a different approach that was that sort of care and guided sort of opportunity, which I, I, I appreciate that very much. I want to recognizing that, yes, the pandemic was a thing that happened. It had lots of impacts. We all know that. We don't need to continue that piece of debate. And we're still in it, you know, as as we get ready to start the the, the new school year. But I do want to sort of shift gears a little bit because, you know, one of the ancillaries that's going to come from the experience that we've all collectively had is tied to innovation. And the reason I want to have this piece of the conversation is because, Ohio has invested, and I, and I don't necessarily mean that from a dollar standpoint, but has invested time, energy, and thought um, and a lot of leadership around fostering and making innovation in education space not only okay, but the thing that we want to champion, right? And you've done, you in particular, have done a lot of work in this space. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about the opportunity for innovation, not just you know sort of the the standard sort of course that was part of strategic plan around innovation, but also the things that we've learned through the pandemic and how that then you believe translates to the opportunity for innovation in schools or in an education. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, I mean, I am a big advocate for innovation, and I think what happened is you know. We have been talking about using technology in education for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've often said to audiences that, you know, this microscopic virus did more to expose educators to how to use technology, yeah. both, both well and not well, <laughs> than any other policy or incentive yep. program or investment that we've ever made. I remember, you know, some of the state's earliest investment in SchoolNet yeah. uh, and other programs to put technology in the classroom. We spend millions and millions of dollars and all, you know, all over the state and the country, educators have yeah. been, you know, education systems have been investing. This little virus did more to actually 
pull people in and say, okay, now you have to understand more. Now you may not like it mm-hmm. and, and it may not work as seamlessly as, as you'd like, especially if you're just beginning to use it and think about how this right. might work. Right. But we had a huge learning experience around technology. And I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to your exactly the word you used to this notion of innovation. Mm-hmm. Because, because while generally, you know, online learning um, got painted, you know, in a, in a relatively poor light in the media, mm-hmm. educators actually saw it in a much more nuanced mm-hmm. way. And they saw that there were, in fact, a number of students that actually benefited from it, mm-hmm. that actually operated well in that setting. And so those educators are starting to think about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to build that in. And part of that means it really drove home this message of a classroom of, you know, pick your number. Is it 19? Is it 22? Mm-hmm. Is it 25 students? It's really a collective of different personalized learning experiences. And the best teachers are going to be able to figure out how can I make an engaging and enriching and a, and a, and a, a strong learning environment for each one of them and maybe a different way. How do I right. allow more student direct self-directedness? How do I, you know, create an engaging learning environment that really makes that student want to work? Maybe I'm doing more project-based learning. Maybe I'm doing more STEM approaches in, in my classroom. Maybe I'm um, doing things that are, uh, um, uh, you know, that speak to a child's aspirations. Maybe I'm infusing more, you know, work-based learning opportunities or out-of-school learning opportunities. I think the, this this unleashing of the idea of different than what we used to do, especially for many, many people who are sort of just used to, I, I get to school, this is my classroom, right. this is how I do. Now thinking about, okay, this, you know, I can do things differently than some students, you know, and each student could have an even more powerful learning experience. And so um, I think the climate is really right. And some of those communication infrastructures, those teacher to teacher, superintendent to superintendent, um, new partnerships, new relationships that emerge, I think, create the conditions where that innovation can really uh, grow and prosper. But there has to, it has to also start with, there's a dispositional aspect to it, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to try something different. And and the thing I love about educators is that that notion is built into the DNA of most educators that I know. That idea of of different is okay if it's going to work. I'm always looking for ways to improve, improve what happens in my classroom, improve the outcomes for my students. I'm open to that. Now, I might be a little cautious Mm -hmm. because if I don't have the time to really work it out, or if I don't have the support from a coach maybe or another teacher that's doing it, or if I don't really have the, the confidence that that it's going to make a difference, then, then maybe I'm a little hesitant. But the, And that's where great leadership and, and great school culture enter into the equation. Because it's, it's the leadership and the culture combined with the willingness to take some risks, but also, you know, work through the successes and the failures that come with that risk that really result in in the, that climate that fosters innovation and can really show that innovation really can make a difference and set you on a new trajectory and build its own momentum once you get going. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with that 100%. You know, one of the, the, the things that I had to chuckle, you know, you needed to chuckle many of the days, right? Because we, we, we just need it. Otherwise, we'd fall under a rock and cry, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, one of, one of the chuckles that I had, you know, over the years of, of working with a variety of schools and school settings and, and individual teachers, and I, I will remember early in my career of working with, with, with schools in sort of this innovation or transformative space, a conversation I had with a teacher, and I, I can't remember a middle school, high school teacher. And it was actually um, here in Central Ohio, one of the, one of our schools, and you know the teacher was talking about the struggle with the communication and with technology. Back to your point, and this was a teacher who had not 
utilized a lot of technology. And so, you know, and when you boil down, the, the reality is this lack of experience, confidence, and a little bit of fear of that thing might know more than I do. And what do I do with that? Right. But the other piece of it is just not being in the habit of relying on or utilizing technology. And this story came, came to play because we discovered, you know, as we're trying to onboard a teacher into using a new technology, that she had never opened her email ever. As long as she had had her school email, she had never opened it because she was afraid of it. And, you know, one of the things that was really intriguing, and the reason I chuckled is because suddenly not only does everybody have to open their email, right, but then they had to learn all these new things really, really, really quickly. And although, to your point, it might be a little stressful, there might be some hesitance, um, you know, you're hoping for, for, for all the components to get in. At the end of the day, though, we did collectively see even our most re- uh, reticent you know, suddenly roll up their sleeves and dig in because the moment provided that. So I, I use all of that sort of, uh, you know, a bit of story, you know, to sort of ask the question, when we think about the work that the state has done and the investment that has been made, and there's been numerous, um, you know, throughout the pandemic. And as we think about the innovation space moving forward, where where's that next sort of sweet spot? And I don't mean to hold you to it, but I'm just pie in the sky here because I think there's a lot of conversation that's happening across many, many, many states around where and how do we make the next set of strategic investments as it relates to education. And I don't just mean mean money, obviously, to bring us to a, a new experience, that new vision of education that you, you really sort of led with, quite frankly, Paulo here, so that we don't slide back. How do we do that? Well, again, I, I think part of it starts with having a vision and, and, and also recognizing that that vision for greatness goes to each child. I, that's why I keep coming back to, and, and I'm not exactly sure the process that we used to arrive at the title for the strategic plan, but, but <laughs> I think about it every day. It's that notion of each child. Yeah. At some point, we, we you know, the, the, the educational system started out actually very individualized, became mm-hmm. more industrialized, right? And now we're getting back to, you know, what is it going to take to help each student get on that path for success? So, so first, there's a recognition that that's our obligation. And this really dovetails with the equity agenda. So many mm-hmm. times people think about the equity agenda and they, and they try to, you know, um, silo it into different identities and different certain, but it's really, when you draw it down to its very essence, it's about every student, every student has a different mix of identities. Mm-hmm. And we have to sort of embrace that and, and also make sure our belief is such that every student can succeed. Right. You might have an IEP. You might be in a in a low income household. You might be in a, in a foster care setting. You might be um, experience, you know, have asthma or diabetes. You know that that doesn't make really a difference to the ultimate goal. Is you every there are successful people with all those circumstances, mm-hmm. and and our obligation is to help each child succeed to to that to that you know to the point where mm-hmm. uh, of their of their capability. And so, and we should never say, no, you know, I don't think Susie can handle this, or I don't think Jimmy's going to be able to, you know, manage that because in 99.99 times out of a hundred, kids will always exceed our yes. expectations. Yes. Right yes. Oh, I, you know, I don't think a, a child can use a laptop like that. You know, sure they can. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mm-hmm. think a student's going to be able to do this new reading program. Of course they can, you know, and, and time and time again, it's been proven that students are hungry for 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 challenging opportunities and they will rise to the occasion if, mm-hmm. if given the supports that they need. So I, I think um, 
I think to your point, uh, it starts with that realization and then an exploration and, and, and this infusion of personalized learning approaches, uh, mastery learning approaches, not being satisfied and, and, and not being, you know, you know, I, I always I always use the example of who thought it was a good idea that if a student gets a D in algebra one, that we should just put them in algebra two, right? I mean, there's, that's there's crazy. No yes. Yes. You know, or, or that, or that we, you know, pass a student who who failed, you know, uh, failed fifth grade, or or, mm-hmm. or just barely got a D in fifth right. grade reading, right. and we put them in sixth grade, right? right. There's, there's no right. logic to that, and 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 we have the capability without, you know, robbing opportunity from other students to help ensure that each student continues to grow and learn and gets the attention they need. Because if we are sure. If, if when a student has a successful experience, they're more excited about learning. They're more engaged about learning, and they and they create their own momentum rather than being put in a place where we know they're not necessarily going to succeed, and that creates its own its own challenges. Yeah. So so how and, and and yet our system is stuck in many respects, and this is the hard part yeah. because you know you went to school and your parents went to school, and this idea of grade levels, you know, yeah. it's all yeah. it's all ingrained yeah. in our society. Yeah. The school calendar is ingrained in our society and, and grade A, B, C, D, you know, mastery. I don't know what mastery is. I know what A, B, C, D. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's such a, in some ways, a silly concept mm-hmm. because we really want everybody to master. You know, yeah. I want everybody to get an A and yet people sometimes revolt against, well, everybody getting an A, that can't be right. So, so, so we have to break through some of those paradigms and, and we can, we can interweave them. There are ways to do that mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. people still understand what's happening in their child's classroom without feeling like, oh my gosh, if you're abandoning grade levels or, or grading, um, you know, what does that mean? We, right. we, we, cause we've seen places work through those realities, mm-hmm. but the point is if we want students to succeed and each child to succeed at some level, then we have to commit ourselves to personalization, customization, and and a mastery basis um, that really reflects and embraces the differences that students bring, uh, the different paths they might choose, um, and and their own aspirations and inspirations and desires, uh, because ultimately, uh, that 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 recipe of recognition and cultivating uh, a student's desires and then making an engagement lear- engaging learning environment will ultimately lead towards that vision of each child being successful. Absolutely, without question. Um, and we we all want to, we all want to see us get there, right? So it's definitely speaking a language we we, yeah. we absolutely appreciate at Pass. Um, you know, as we sort of think about wrapping up our conversation. You have announced that you are retiring and so passing the baton to someone else. And so, you know, I would really love the the opportunity to sort of close our conversation today with sort of asking you, thinking about that moment where you step back and somebody else has to sort of step into the process that you you you've laid the groundwork for, where you know, where do you see, you know, you're having that conversation with that next individual and say, here are the things that you, you, you want to be not aware of or even mindful of, but from your own aspirational work, the, the career that you've led, you know, when you think about the potential that, that education in Ohio has, what, what's a, what is that thing out there that's sort of a, a golden orb almost, if you sort of think about if we could, yeah. that maybe we should. What would that thing be? Or maybe there's multiples, um, you know, um, just sort of recognizing that as, as you step away, what, what, what is your message back to, to those that are slugging along here? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, first of all, let's not call it slugging along. Yeah, that's it's, true. It's, it's all good. Yeah. It is still <laughs> a joyful, it's a joyful pursuit. Um, and and which is, you know, when the, at various points in my career, I had choices about what areas, mm-hmm. what fields I could go into. And I chose education because of the amazing people that work each and every day in, in this joyful effort of, of shaping our future, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very creative mm-hmm. endeavor because we are taking these, these young people and, 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 you know, building in them and, and allowing them to acquire the knowledge and skills that that are going to make our future. These are our future, our leaders, our entrepreneurs, our innovators, our, our business people, our uh, safety forces, on and on and on and on. And, and on. these kids are amazing. They are. They're they amazing. Are absolutely. So, so yeah. one thing is never forget that. Never yeah. forget the joy that we should bring to this work and that, and that it ought to be joyful for students too. That's why this yeah. whole um, idea of student engagement, yeah. you know, so many times we, you know, high schools and transforming high schools, I think is a, is, is something that we're going to see a lot more because mm-hmm. people are beginning to understand that there are a lot of students who aren't engaged and they're going right. to kind of going lockstep around this plan that somebody else has come up with. And I'm going to college. I'm not really sure how it's going to all fit together, but, but we really have to take a step back and say, you know, who are you? What do you want? What are you, what are your passions and how do we make this Interesting. So math has meaning and literacy has meaning and literature has meaning and science has meaning to you and what you want to do with your life. It's a perfect time uh, to do that. So so this is my long winded way of saying what I really hope for is a continued commitment and a culture of improvement mm-hmm. uh, and, and not just at an individual level, but at a systemic level, always looking for things that will allow us to be better at what we do and help more and more students to be successful. And some of that, you know, will come down to great leadership skills. Some of it will come down to, you know, the culture. I, I love thinking about the school as kind of an organism, as, mm-hmm. as, a, as a, you know, as a singular entity where all the pieces and parts have to work together. But that means you have to have a shared language and a shared vision and the ability to talk to each other, look at data, look at what you're doing and whether it's working or not, and feeding back and, and refining what you're doing or rethinking what you're doing when you see that it's not really making a difference. And as your student body changes, the way you address, you know, the needs of that student body and what you're doing all also changes, uh, you know, with each, you know, class or with each, you know, decade or, or, or what have you. So the sense of, uh, of a real culture of improvement, a culture of feedback, a culture of excellence, if we commit ourselves to that, we can get there. Because the reality is we can find schools and districts that do that each and every day today. But we think we and we know that more and more could do the same thing if they structure themselves and, and commit themselves to being in that sort of improvement mode and nurture the systems that allow them to excel. Yeah. Um, I think we've got a great opportunity because we've we've got this huge investment of federal resources. Mm-hmm. We have a new state funding system that I'm really excited about. You know, we've got a continuous amount of research that shows, you know, we I, I always tell people when they say, we really need to research what works. I say, look, we know what works. Yeah. The challenge is not in the what works, it's in the implementation okay. and getting the will to actually do what mm-hmm. works and, and which means we're closer and closer to actually doing more and more of it. And the more sharing we can do, and the more, you know, that organizations like yours can help promote what great practice looks like. That is what will continue us on, a, on our road to excellence. I have no doubt that we can make it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, uh, you know, thank you very much. I think that was just a wonderful way to wrap the conversation in the sense that I love the fact that, that you led with, you know, the, the school and our education culture, it's a living, breathing thing and it can't stay static. And, you know, we have to recognize that, that it is in fact a living, breathing thing and it changes over time. And that's, that's yeah. just 
a wonderful thing. So, you know, Paul, I want to not only thank you for making time today to have this conversation with us, but, you know, I also want to thank you very much for your service to the state. Um, you know, I, I, I think that sometimes people take it for granted, but, you know, when we, we have individuals that are willing to step into the shoes because of their, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough walk. It's a joyful one in many ways, but it's not easy. And so, so I thank you for being willing to lead and for the conversation today and good luck with what's next. Well, I think thank everything that the PASS Foundation does uh, for students and for learning and for you know innovation. It's so important. And I love the fact that we're partners. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and like so many partners across the state, it's the collaboration that makes us stronger, makes us better and allows us to go farther. So thanks for all you do, Annalise, as well. Oh, you're very welcome. It is certainly um, our pleasure. We enjoy it very much. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.